Welcome to CAE Pilot Podcast, a podcast that brings together aviation professionals to discuss life as a pilot, training, and career advice. You can find us at cae.com forward slash CAE Pilot dash podcast or subscribe to our show on your audio podcasting platform of choice. You can also find our video podcast on our YouTube channel. Welcome to this episode of the CAE Pilot Podcast, and we're thrilled to have you with us. You know, in the aviation industry, there are certain icons, and those are people, those are aircraft, and those are also eras and periods of time that, you know, many people within the industry will consider to be the glory days. Um, and today, we are going to talk about uh, someone who really, you know, personifies all three of those. Um, we're thrilled to have John Hutchinson with us. And he is, um, he really lived the glory days of flying, um, started his career at BOAC um, on the 707 and ended it on an aircraft that is probably the most iconic, certainly in civil aviation. And of course, I'm talking about the Concorde. Um, John, welcome to the CAE pod podcast. Well, it's very nice to be here. And that's a great model you have there behind you. <laughs> I thought I'd better have Concorde firmly in the background there. Well, it's, or even it's in a, the foreground. It's, you're looking good there. We're going to try something new this year before starting our discussion. And um, I'm looking forward to your answer on this because I suspect you have uh, a lot of great memories uh, from your career. But what would you say is the most significant memory you have from your career in aviation? I suppose the, the greatest privilege I've had in my aviation career uh, was being one of the captains on the Royal Flight to the United States in 1991 um, when we carried uh, H.M. the Queen and His Royal Highness the Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, over to Washington. We landed at Andrews Air Force Base rather than at uh, Washington's Dulles International. And that whole trip was just fantastic. Having spent a couple of days in Washington, we then flew the Queen and Prince Philip down to Miami. And they then boarded the Royal Yacht and went on a, on a great cruise around the voyage around the Florida Panhandle. And we picked them up at Tampa and then took them on to Houston and Dallas. Um, and the Queen disappeared at that point and went off to join some stud breeding, racehorse breeding chap who was a friend of hers in Kentucky or somewhere. And we took Prince Philip home. And that, but you know, that was a huge privilege. And it's an extraordinary thing doing a royal flight because. For a start, you don't go anywhere until the royal arrives. Having said that, of course, as you probably know, but for anybody who doesn't, the queen is punctilious about timing, so she was never, ever late. She would arrive minute perfect uh, to get on the airplane to fly on to the next destination. But the trick is, You've got to arrive at the red carpet at the destination 
spot on time. And, and you can't just sort of land and think, crikey, I'm about seven minutes too early and go and park in, a, in an obscure bit of the airport and then taxi up to the red carpet. You have to time it so that you land, taxi off and arrive second perfect the red, um, by the red carpet. And we managed that on every single occasion. It was a fantastic flight. I mean, I just feel hugely privileged to have been one of the crew on it. It sounds like an amazing experience. And flying the Concorde, I would imagine that timing the red carpet was more a matter of slowing down than speeding up. It was very much a question of slowing down, not speeding up. That's exactly right. You've hit the nail on the head perfectly there. No. Um, while, we're, while we're just on the subject, it's quite funny. Um, somewhere or other, I've got my logbox here just in case I needed to refer to them. And I hope I can find it. Um, maybe it's in another logbook. Which one's it in? Which one is it in? But it's quite amusing. I had to send a message from the Queen to the President. Um, a a dad-a-link message. It was George Bush the first, of course. And the message reads as follows. I had to transmit this on the air. Uh, through fire air traffic. To the President of the United States, as we fly south, I'd like to express heartfelt thanks on behalf of Prince Philip and myself for a wonderful visit to Washington. We shall never forget the friendliness with which you and Mrs. Bush looked after us, nor the warmth of our welcome throughout our stay. We look forward keenly to seeing you again in London in July. Elizabeth R. How about that? <laughs> Feel like I'm in an episode of there we uh, are. The Crown somehow. That's the said telex there. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Just brilliant. You must have some uh, some wonderful uh, mementos from your career. Uh, I've got lots of incredible memories. What I should have done, of course, on Concord, I should have got autographs from all my passengers and I could have flogged <laughs> it on eBay. It would have been a priceless collection of autographs. We're going to talk about who you've met and the sort of the, the, uh, the, great, um, the great times uh, aboard Concord. But before we do that, and we typically ask this of everybody, is, um, you know, before you got to Concord, you know, you were... Presumably a young man who dreamt of flying. Tell us a little bit about the progression of your career. Where did you get the bug to fly? How did, uh, how did you end up, you know, in, uh, in the Concorde at the end of your career? Well, it's a very good question, actually, Patrick. I'm, I don't really know why I got the bug for flying. I was actually born in India, in Rawal Pindi, which is now Pakistan, of course. But it was India when I was born there. And we lived there until the winter of 1947-48. And in that time, that sort of ten and a half years, um, I never saw an airplane. But I can, I've got still in my loft, I think, a whole stack of books, aircraft identification books, the Boys' Wonder Book of the Royal Air Force, 
God knows what the inspiration was. I have no idea at all. My father was in the Indian Army. He couldn't understand where all this sort of enthusiasm for the air and for aeroplanes came from. So I had no idea. It was, I must have had it implanted in me at birth for some reason. And I just knew from the age of about eight that's all, that all I wanted to do was to fly. And I joined the Royal Air Force in 1955 on my 18th birthday. And I was sent out to Canada to do my flying training under a NATO flying training scheme that existed in those days. Spent the last three years of my Air Force career as a flying instructor on Jeb Provost. At that point, I knew that I wanted to leave the Air Force, not because I didn't love the Air Force, I did. And in fact, I owe the Air Force everything in terms of my flying career. Um, but I knew that I didn't want to end up doing desk jobs um, in Whitehall and that sort of thing. I didn't want ground jobs. I just wanted to fly airplanes. So I left. My timing wasn't particularly good because at that point, we're now talking, we're talking 1963, uh, the April, May 1963, and there were no jobs around in the airlines at all. And I literally ended up writing to all the flying schools around the UK, knocking on people's doors. And I happened to knock on the doors of a company called McAlpine Aviation in Luton. On the very day that one of their pilots had, had lost his license for medical reasons, he'd had some heart problem and lost his license. And I just walked straight into a job there. And I had three years at McAlpine's doing corporate flying. And I applied to Qantas, BEA, British European Airways, that is, and BOAC, British Overseas Airways, as it was. And I was accepted by all three of them. And I, was, I would have been very, very tempted to go to Australia. I mean, I just think Australia is a fantastic country. I love the Australians. It's a great way of life for youngsters out there. A tremendous country. Uh, but um, my mother was dying of cancer at that time. And I just didn't think it appropriate for me to be disappearing down to Australia with her grandchildren, uh, leaving her to die uh, without the presence of the grandchildren. So I decided against Qantas. And then it was BEA or BOAC when I decided I wanted to fly long haul rather than short haul, so BOAC it was. And of course, that was a fateful decision. You never know about these things at the time. And of course, if I'd joined Qantas, I'd never have gone on to, on to Concord. So, you know, I qualified as a captain in 19, January 1976. And then to my utter astonishment, in the summer of, well, the spring, early summer of 1970, of 19, oh, let's get the years right. January 1976 was when I qualified as a captain. So it was in the spring, summer of 1977 that British Airways, as it had now become, was asking for bids to go on to Concord. And I put in this speculative bid, never thinking for one moment at my extreme juniority level 
that I'd get anywhere near this aeroplane. And to my utter astonishment, I found I was on the third course. And, um, well, the rest of it, the rest of my time in the airline was spent on that utterly magnificent, fantastic aeroplane. And I still pinch myself in disbelief that I had the privilege to fly her for 15 years. It was wonderful. That's very nice. Actually, if I can jump in here, Patrick, I have a question for John. So you say you just went on the Concorde after having just been a captain for one year on the VC-10. And I'm actually wondering, uh, what was the course on the Concorde like? How, how long was it or difficult? What, what was it like from a pilot's perspective? Was it, I guess it was very difficult, wasn't it? The course on Concorde was the most intense course. I mentioned the CFS course as being the one I learned most about flying. Uh, it was very, very hard work. Um, it was eight weeks of ground school, Filton, with lecturers from British Aerospace doing the lectures about all the systems, hydraulics, electrics, undercarriage, navigation, flight instruments, all that stuff, pressurization, you name it, covering all aspects of the aircraft. And every week you had a... Uh, an exam and you had to get at least 90% or you had a big question mark being flagged up over you. At the end of the grind school, you had to do the air registration board um, final exam, technical exam, which was something, I can't remember, something like 450 questions covering all the different systems as I was saying earlier, hydraulics, electrics, and so on. And you had to get over 90% in each section. And by some miracle, I did. Um, and that was just pure hard work, I think. Um, and then you had 85 hours in a flight simulator, where you learned not only to fly a perfectly conventional airplane in subsonic flight, you also had to learn to fly an airplane with rather different responses when you were in supersonic flight. So it was a very, very intensive uh, simulator course. Once you'd completed that, and in my case, we went to Royal Air Force Prize Norton and did about eight hours of circuits and bumps out of Prize Norton with Concord. And you then, as the final thing, you then went down the route for about three months with one of what were known as the core group of pilots and flight engineers that had done their training, not, not with British Airways trainers, um, as I'd done in the simulator. They'd done their entire... Um, I had civilian British Aerospace lecturers in the grand school, but the simulator training was entirely done by British Airways training captains. And these guys had been seconded to British Aerospace about three years before Concorde came into service. And they'd been on the test flights, um, route proving trials with Brian Trumpshaw and John Cochrane. They'd been all over the place flying on Concorde. They'd been seconded to British Aerospace to learn all about Concorde, and they became, as I say, the nucleus group that, um, that formed the training cohort that 
was responsible for the initial courses on Concord. And they were the people who set the whole sort of standard of flight operations for Concord. Um, anyway, after three months of going down the route with one of the with these um, nucleus group pilots, um, I was finally endorsed as a Concorde pilot. So the total course length was around six months, and it was very it was very hard graft. And uh, during the course, so you said you've done basically a base training on the Concorde, right? So it means you've been flying patterns around an airfield in an empty Concorde. That must have been interesting, right? Being such a powerful airplane, being completely <laughs> empty <laughs> and doing base training. <laughs> I think this, these instructors used to have a lot of fun at our expense because you're quite right. I mean, the airplane had no passengers on board, had no baggage on board. All it had got was a few crew meals, sort of hamburgers and things. And maybe we'd have sort of 10 or 15 people on board as a sort of look-see experience. And it had been decided that although British Aerospace had a procedure for doing takeoffs at light weight without the use of reheats, you had to do the calculations differently. And British Airways deemed that to have two different takeoff procedures could cause confusion. So we never used the reheat this takeoff procedure ever. All takeoffs in Concorde were done with full power and reheats. So here you are training at Bryce Norton with this incredibly light aircraft, and you're cleared to 3,000 feet as your first cleared altitude. Well, believe me, you, you have one hell of a struggle containing the airplane and leveling off at 3,000 feet. It's like a rocket. Well, so actually, in the end, you've been flying a fighter jet of some sort, right? <laughs> in the end. Yeah, that's a good point. So <laughs> that that's partly explains why I now look back on the Shackleton with great fondness, because I've done my fighter pilot flying in a Concorde. Exactly. And I think that, you know, a lot to, to put it into context for people, British Airways at the time wasn't just introducing a new aircraft type. They were introducing a completely different way of commercial flight at the time. And that must have been a very interesting time to live through. Oh, fascinating time. And I, I, you're absolutely right. The prevailing philosophy at that time was just bums on seats, as many bums on seats as you can get. The sort of top end of the market wasn't something that British Airways at that time was interested in. Um, and it wasn't until uh, John King, who became Sir John King and then later Lord King, the average flight time from New York to London or London to New York was about three hours and a quarter from takeoff to touchdown. Um, I think the fastest flight was two hours and 56 minutes from New York to London. But, you know, you're talking about just over three hours was the sort of bog standard takeoff to touchdown timing. So you have to take out at least 15 minutes after takeoff while the airplane's sort of accelerating and climbing away and getting clear of any, um, any turbulence. And then you've got to take out another 20, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, clearing the whole cabin up uh, prior to landing. 
So those Concorde crew members, cabin crew, had about two and a half working hours to do a full drink service and then a full meal service, three-course meal service, with all the fine wines accompanying it. And then, and this again, in, this is what happened in the early days, they then went round with um, coffee and cognac and cigars. And people be lighting up their cigars. It became like a gentleman's uh, smoking club. And <laughs> speaking... We're talking about a totally different world, aren't we? And speaking from experience, uh, doing all that in two and a half hours is, uh, is a serious cardio workout. That's not, uh, not easy work by any stretch. With, with one single aisle, and you know, quite often on the New York flights, we had 100 passengers. I've done several flights with 101 passengers, carrying one on the flight deck, a paying commercial passenger on the flight deck. And, you know, those, they, 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 for the cabin crew to provide wonderful, unhurried service, looking totally calm and unruffled, it was a fantastic act on their part. It really was. And as far as, as pilots and, and cabin crew go, there must have been enormous pride to be operating this aircraft. It went far beyond just the pilots and the cabin crew, um, or the flight crew and the cabin crew. I mean, it was the ground engineers, <coughs> the dispatchers, the people who did our load sheets, um, the refuelers, the whole gamut of support that was involved in the Concorde operation felt a tremendous sense of ownership of that operation and pride in that operation and a determination that they were going to get the airplane away on time. I mean, it was the, the morale in that fleet was just fantastic. And we've, we've spoken a lot about the, uh, you know, the, there was two daily flights, if I'm not mistaken, to, uh, between New York and, uh, and London. But what was the rest of the, uh, the route network like on uh, Concorde? Well, it, it, to start with, and I'm going back to the very, very first flight, commercial flight of a Concorde was 21st of January 1976. And that was to Bahrain. That was the only route that was cleared for operations in the very first instance. <laughs> so the British Airways Concorde went to Bahrain. And on that day of that first flight, it was a synchronized departure from Heathrow with the British Airways aircraft and from Charles de Gaulle with the Air France one, which went to Dakar in Senegal and then on to Rio de Janeiro. We wanted in British Airways to get into Washington, but there were a whole lot of regulatory hurdles that we had to get through in terms of noise and all the rest of it and environmental impact and so on and so forth. And eventually, Washington, bless them, Dulles Airport, gave us clearance to go on a trial basis. I can't remember, a year's trial or something, something like that, um, to go into Washington. So that service started up in the summer of 1976. And we... At this point, I think, if my, if my memory is correct, we had three times a week to Bahrain and three times a week to, to Washington. 
And of course, it was the clearance into Washington that led to the big prize, the big prize, which of course was New York. And we got the clearance to go into New York in the end. Um, I think it was October or November 1977. And that was a massively big day for the, for the airline and for the whole Concorde project. But it's all thanks to Washington let us, letting us into Washington in the first place. <coughs> um, once the New York route had become established, we then ended up with twice a day to New York, as you've already mentioned, the Speedbird 1, which left at 10.30 in the morning, and the Speedbird 3, which left at 7 o'clock in the evening. Uh, and then, of course, the return flights, I think, I can't remember. I think the flight out of New York left at something like nine o'clock in the morning. And then there was a flight at 1.45 in the afternoon back to London, which got in to London at about 10 o'clock at night. Um, so that was twice a day to New York now. So at this stage, we'd got, and I'm talking about for the late 1970s, coming into the early 1980s, we'd got two flights a day to New York, three flights a week to Washington, three flights a week out to Bahrain, but the Bahrain route had been extended to Singapore with the ultimate intention of going on to Australia, but that never, never happened, sadly. And I had a, a glorious, in, in flying terms, probably the best flying I've ever had in my life. Um, flying, I've spent, what was it, something like three or four months. We had a Singapore posting for some extraordinary reason. Don't ask me why. So I was actually based in Singapore, doing nothing but flying between Singapore to Bahrain and then Bahrain back to Singapore. You all will know, I'm sure, most or certainly most people are listening to me, that the Earth's atmosphere is much uh, thicker over the equatorial latitudes than it is over the polar latitudes. So you've got a much thicker atmosphere in the Singapore regions than you have um, flying between London and New York. And your lapse rate of two degrees per thousand feet, and that lapse rate goes on all the time in, as you go up in the Earth's atmosphere until you get to the uh, tropopause. Um, that, what I'm really getting at in a rather long-winded, clunky way, is that whereas the outside air temperatures flying between London and New York at 50,000 feet and above was something like minus 55, because you were up above the uh, tropopause, Flying between London, uh, Singapore and Bahrain, the upper air temperatures were something like minus 85 to minus 90, 30 degrees colder than the sort of temperatures I was used to flying to New York. And I can tell you what, it made one heck of a difference to the performance of the airplane. I mean, going across to New York, we very rarely ever got to 60,000 feet. We'd cruise climb once you got to 50,000 feet with the throttles wide open, the airplane burned the fuel off, weight decreased, you just gently drifted uphill. 
and typically you'd reach about 58 and a half, 59,000 feet before you needed to throttle back and re-enter. I to Singapore to Bahrain with a full load of fuel, full load of passengers. You get to 50,000 feet and the airplane would just carry on climbing at about 5,000 feet a minute, straight up to 60,000 feet. And you'd then go into Mac hold and out hold on the autopilot. And you just sat there at 60,000 feet the whole of the rest of the way. It was very, very different performance. Very interesting how deeply significant temperature can be or variations in temperature can be. And other destinations, I think, were Barbados, if I'm not mistaken. There was a Saturday yeah. flight to Barbados. Yeah, we ended up with a weekly flight to Barbados around that time. Can't remember exactly when they started up, sort of early 80s. And that built up at the sort of peak season to twice or three times a week to Barbados. And we also, for a short while, had flights to Toronto. And the Canadians, God bless them, gave us clearance to fly supersonic over sort of the northern, northeast bits of Canada. So, again, we had quite an extensive schedule route structure. And then in the sort of early to mid-1980s, uh, charter flights started up. And notably, there was a company called Goodwood Travel who became the leading Concorde charterer that British Airways worked with. And they did charter flights all over the place, including round-the-world charters. Um, so that added a whole new sort of a, a whole new database of customers, basically, because on these charter flights, these seats were being sold at prices that people could just about afford, whereas the scheduled fares were distinctly unaffordable. Um, and and they, they were just tremendous fun. I mean, I, I, I mean we, we used to do these round-the-bay charters, which lasted about an hour and a quarter, and in that hour and a quarter, you go through the whole spectrum of the, of the flight on road. Uh, you'd go up to 50,000 feet, Mach 2, up to 60,000 feet, and then throttle back, decelerate, come in and land. And we used to get all the passengers, because they were invariably 100 passengers on board. We used to get them all up into the flight deck for a quick look-see and a photograph. Um, and I remember one... Notable occasion, there was an elderly lady, she lived up in, uh, in the Newcastle area in the northeast of England. And she was aged 101, and she had never flown. And her first flight was she, the Concorde. She decided that before she died, she was going to have to fly in Concorde. So she bought herself a seat on one of these round-the-bay flights, got down to London. I I think she came with her daughter, and um, and they got on the airplane. The cabin crew looked after after them as they did with everybody. And actually, that's something I was wondering, John, because you say okay, uh, the so the service on board the Concorde, uh, there was obviously a lot of drinking involved, right? There was champagne before the meal. There was nice wines during the meal, and then cognac, etc. Oh, and the cockpit door was open during this whole time, right? Did you ever have like a passenger coming in the fly deck and giving you trouble, being drunk, possibly? Was that something? No, that no. The, 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 I've had one experience of a, 
uh, of an actor who will remain unnamed, <laughs> um, who got completely horrendously drunk. Um, and we'd had to dive. He was flying out to go and watch the, oh God, what do they call the great big? Oh, the, no, no, the no, Super no, Bowl. No. He was going out to that. And we'd had to divert from New York because the weather was fine and ended up in Baltimore. My last memory of this actor was him lying in a complete drunken, unconscious heap in the baggage hall. <laughs> so I don't know what happened to him. Speaking he, he, of... went, he went on to act more films, so somebody, somebody rescued him. But uh, that's the only sort of drunken um, um, ex ex episode I've ever had. I mean, let's face it, these people, uh, I mean, they, 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 they were all very, very worldly wise people. They'd, they'd learned how to drink and how to handle themselves. And they weren't the sort of people who got smashed out of their brains. But given the exclusivity of the, the Concord, um, you must have had the opportunity to meet, you know, countless movie stars, high-profile pro people. You know, you already mentioned, you know, Flying the Queen, etc. What was it like to meet these people? It was a huge privilege, of course. I, I used to look at the passenger list on every flight and scan the list. Think, oh, I wouldn't mind meeting her or him. <laughs> and I'd issue an invitation. Would you like to come up and watch the takeoff out of London or the landing into New York? And, you know, people always accepted those sort of invitations. And I've met some memorable people. Um, sadly, I never kept a log of it. My brain isn't all that good at holding memories. I can show you one notable one that definitely left a, an impression on my mind. And I don't know if that's at all visible. But it gives you some idea. Of oh, wow. Of, of what, the, uh, what the menu is. Yeah. But no, this, is a very, this is a particular, particularly special menu. I don't know how well this will come out. See if you can work out whose signature that is. Oh, wow. Muhammad Ali, is that it? Exactly so. Wow. Yeah, exactly so. And that was December the 18th, 1978. And that man came up onto the flight deck. Bloody hell. He was gorgeous. He was beautiful. He was the most fantastic physical specimen I think I've ever seen. He was witty. He was humorous. He was completely straightforward. There's nothing pompous about him. And he was just bloody good fun. He was tremendous value. And a living legend uh, who exemplified that right till the end, if you know. Yeah. The way yeah he's he's... Great man. Great man. So let's get to and a I little mean, bit. Know, Sorry, go ahead. It was an incredibly easy airplane to fly in terms of just handling it. It was delightful. It was responsive. It did exactly what you wanted it to do. Um, it was a very demanding airplane to manage, if that distinction makes sense. For, uh, mm. All three members of that flight deck had to know exactly what their roles were and what their duty. You were working 
working your butt off to keep the whole thing under control. You had to keep mentally way, way ahead of the aeroplane in a way that I've never had to do with any other aeroplane. It was a very, very demanding, unforgiving mistress of an aeroplane. It, and I would, it did not suffer fools. And I would imagine that the speed at which you're going just accentuates any mishap. Yeah, could, could do quite easily, yes, I mean, absolutely. And tell me, what was a typical roster like for a Concorde pilot? You know, did you, uh, you know, some people might sit back today and say, wow, well, did you do a turnaround, New York? Or, you know, I think the flying that we see today versus what you probably did was quite different. Um, I would have loved to have done much more flying. I mean, I, I, I don't think in my, quite often it was only one, there's three round trips a month. We could have done a there and back in a day. There's no doubt about that uh, because the captain who was supposed to be taking it back had gone sick himself in New York and I took it back. Wow. Now, um, I know that uh, Renault's got a bunch of questions about, uh, about what it's like to fly the Concorde, so I'll hand it over to him for, uh, for those <laughs> few questions. Yeah, thank you, Patrick. And uh, just before that, maybe a last thing that I would like to know, John. Uh, so before being on the Concorde, of course, you've been on the Boeing 707, etc. And speaking right now as a young pilot, you know, the rosters that we are doing are very busy. We spend not that much time uh, down route because there's usually several flights a day. So, you know, you don't need to be three, four, five days anymore at destination. I'm wondering how different it was for you, let's say, in the 1970s when you were flying the Boeing 707. Like, what kind of missions were you doing? How long were they and how much time you, you would spend down route? Oh, it was hugely different. I mean, typically, I, I did, you, did the 707 route structure. Back at the time I joined BOEC, so we're now back in 1966, 67, late 1960s, um, they had the eastern routes and western routes. Western routes, obviously, by definition, went across the Atlantic to the US and Canada. Eastern routes out to Australia, basically. And I was on eastern routes, which is what I wanted to be. Um, and typically, we'd go away for two to two and a half weeks. And you, you know, you, 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 <laughs> on a, let's have a look at a sort of typical flight to Sydney, for instance. You take off from London, and you almost invariably on those Far East Air flights, you'd have a European stopover first. And we used to either stop at Zurich or um, Frankfurt or Rome. And you'd have a night stop there, maybe two nights there until the next airplane came through. You then go from that European um, airport to maybe Tehran or Karachi. And you'd then slip there and have a night or two there or Delhi. And then you'd go to Singapore and you'd have a couple of nights there. And then you'd go on to Sydney. So it sort of worked 
on that sort of routine. It was like a, it was like a sort of two and a half week holiday trip, um, staying at all these different places. And, you know, it, it, we used to have uh, ordinary membership of golf clubs in these various places, squash clubs. Uh, we had a flying staff recreation club, which provided dinghies and things for sailing with if you were in a, in a place where you could go sailing. Um, it, was, it, was, it was a remarkable, a remarkable lifestyle, very, very different from anything that exists today. Yeah, you're making me very jealous right now, you know. <laughs> but, uh, but also, you know, I'm thinking, there you are going for two weeks or two and a half weeks in a time where emails, WhatsApp, cell phones are non-existent. It must have been also quite difficult on the family point of view, you know, like to, to be away from home for that long and with little ways of contacting your family, kind of. I'd say you should have a word with my wife about that. <laughs> she... She would agree with that statement. Um, so we've spoken already about Concord, the fact that it was a very fast airplane, right? The cruising speed was twice the speed of sound, basically, and the cruising altitudes were in, in the high 50,000 feet, 58,000 feet. Um, but uh, what I was wondering was in terms of takeoff speeds, because right now, you know, I, I take off on an Airbus 320. Sometimes we have... 140, maybe 150 knots takeoff speed when we are heavy. What was it like to take off on the Concorde? Because I think you had to accelerate quite quick, wasn't it? At, at transatlantic weights, um, a sort of typical set of speeds for takeoff would be a V1 of around 155 knots, a rotate speed of around 198 knots, oh. and a V2 of 220 knots um, and when you the interesting thing about the Concorde takeoff because of the wing design at speeds below 270 knots you're not getting your lift from a laminar flow of air over the delta wing you're getting the lift from two huge vortices that develop over the wings, massive, massive vortices, and it's the low pressure in those vortices that gives you your lift. And in fact, at slow speeds, there's quite a lot of turbulence in the airplane, uh, buffeting, mm -hmm. um, which I used to warn passengers about. And I'd say, look, if anybody who's sort of been on airplanes or knows about flying, that buffet you'll feel after takeoff isn't a stall buffet, it's buffet caused by these vortices. Um, and it wasn't until you accelerated above 250 knots and brought the nose up that suddenly the airplane would resume, would take on a lovely sort of smooth aspect to its flight. Those wings are not developing any lift as you accelerate down the runway. Whereas in a 747, for instance, You know, those wings are beginning to generate lift as there's an airflow over the wings and it's relieving the load on the undercarriage. And by the time you get to rotate, you're almost sort of airborne anyway. Um, not like that in Concorde at all. I mean, you could go infinitely fast on a Concorde and it would stay firmly ground gripping until you actually changed the attitude of the airplane and presented the delta wing at an angle to the airflow. 
and then you start getting the lift. So the stresses on the undercarriage were quite considerable, not only in terms of the higher speeds that we're talking about, but also in terms of the fact that there was no uh, load relief on the undercarriage during the takeoff at all. In fact, as you rotated, you're actually putting quite a lot of extra load on the undercarriage, on the main undercarriage, as you pivoted around that undercarriage to lift off. Makes sense. And uh, so I've read about, I've read a little bit about the Concorde because, of course, that's an aircraft that I have never really known. Um, I've never been on Concorde, so I've read, I've read about it. And I've read that there, there are a lot of technical features that are very specific to Concorde. For example, um, I guess, you know, the afterburners, uh, the fact that <laughs> the fuels, uh, it kind of uh, retracts and there's like a visor that comes up, etc. Can you tell us just a little bit about those features that are very specific to that aircraft, actually? Well, the most important feature of the airplane, really, and the thing that enabled it to maintain sustained supersonic flight with the variable geometry intakes. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean these huge sort of doors that came down in the intake. They were hydraulically powered, controlled by the only digital computer in the airplane, because basically everything in that airplane, because of when it was created, was analog. Uh, this was the first sort of um, step into digital computer technology were the computers that controlled those intake ramps. And those computers were fed with all the sort of information it needed. And they would then command those barn door intake ramps into precisely the set right position for whatever stage of supersonic flight you were in. Uh, and that intake system was just extraordinary. It worked phenomenally well. And just as an interesting fact, once you were cruising at Mach 2 in sustained supersonic flight, um, only about 30 to 35 percent of the thrust was being produced by the engines. The other 65 percent of the thrust was being produced by the intakes. Right. Indeed. And, um, and, and can you let us know a little bit uh, what that re retractable nose and tilting nose was for? Well, what was the purpose of that? Because that's only unique to Concorde, I think, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that was always a, a thing that sort of exercised people's imaginations a lot. Um, it, it, the nose hinged from forward of the flight deck, by the way. Mm -hmm. I think a, a lot of Passengers, certainly in the early days of Concorde, sort of imagined that, that us in the flight deck were going down with the nose as well. Not at all. This is all forward of the flight deck. And the only purpose of the nose lowering was to enable the pilots on approach uh, to have a, a decent view of the runway. I mean, I've got a little model Concorde here. But you can imagine if it's, you're coming in at quite a high nose up attitude and if you've got the nose stuck in the up position, all you can see in front of you is this long needle nose and no view of the runway. So the idea was you could lower the nose down to 12 and a half degrees, which took the whole nose section 
out of the line of sight for the pilots. And they left, left them with a lovely clear view of the runway surface. Um, the visor was a heat shield, basically, made by triplex, triplex glass, mm -hmm. very tough glass, specially made for Concorde. Um, that was there to streamline the shape of the airplane. With the nose down, the heat shield, the visor, was retracted into the nose cone. When you brought the nose fully up, the final stage was to then bring the visor up over the windshield. And so you got a lovely, smooth, aerodynamic um, profile. And there you are, you can see what it looks like with the yep. uh, nose visor up. And that's the way you flew all the way across the Atlantic in that situation. And then when you came to land at New York, you'd lower the nose down and down to 12 and a half degrees for the landing. Yep. We also had another position five degrees down, which was the position we used for takeoff and for taxiing around in the airport area. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And uh, uh, before with Patrick, I think we're just gonna uh, dispel and or confirm a few myths about Concorde before uh, finishing the podcast. But I have one last question. So basically, uh, Concorde was developed in the 1960s and then lived through the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s actually. And then, of course, in 2000, there was the the famous Concorde accident in Paris, Charles de Gaulle. Um, what I was wondering is that at that time, did you know that the, the Concorde was would be removed from uh, air traffic uh, because maybe of the fuel consumption of the fact that the price of the tickets was so high or other factors maybe. And do you think that if there wouldn't have been that Paris accident, do you think the Concorde would still be around nowadays? Um, well, if it hadn't been for that accident, I'm absolutely convinced the Concorde would have gone on flying for a few years longer. Yeah. People say no, it wouldn't have done because of the cost. But what you have to appreciate is that the people who used it, the cost was completely irrelevant. Okay, so John, I have some uh, myth that I've read about Concorde and I want to ask you actually if those are true or if those are false. Uh, the, the first one that I read a lot is that uh, people say that when they were flying Concorde as passengers or maybe as flight crew, um, from the cruising altitude of 58 or 60,000 feet, you could actually see the curvature of the Earth. Is that actually true or is that a myth? No, it's true. You can certainly see it. Um, what rather mucked that up, however, was Mount St. Helens um, erupting. When was that? I can't remember. The early 80s, something like that. I and it threw, a, it threw a huge amount of volcanic dust up into the upper atmosphere. And for several years after that, for several years after that, this sort of cloud of dust was still floating around in the upper levels. And it, that did definitely obscure the, the, the vision of the curvature of the Earth. But on, on a truly clear day, you could absolutely see the curvature for sure, yeah. And, um, and the, the next one that I read a lot is that, uh, and actually I think British Airways used that as a, a slogan to promote the Concorde operation. And I think they said, uh, 
with Concorde, you can arrive before you leave on westbound flights. Is that true? And how does that make sense? Well, you were, you were, you would literally, you'd take off from London at 10.30 in the morning, which would be 5.30 in the morning, New York time. So that's five hours time difference. The flight would take three and a quarter hours, let's say. So you'd arrive uh, an hour and three quarters before you left, roughly speaking. So you'd arrive at New York at about nine o'clock in the morning when you'd taken off from London at 10.30 in the morning. And the, the really interesting one was the Speedbird 3 where I would, at certain times of the year, and I'm talking about the spring and the fall, um, you know, I'd drive up to Heathrow, see the sunset, take off from Heathrow in the pitch dark, and get two-thirds of the way across the Atlantic, flogging along at Mach 2, and you'd see the sun rising in the west as you overhauled it, and you'd then land at Kennedy Airport in the very late afternoon and see your second sunset, of the day in New York. And that told people rather more vividly than simply resetting their watches, how fast they traveled. It's amazing, isn't it? I, I that was it. unbelievable, unbelievable, the whole thing. And you were talking earlier on about how this was a product of the 1960s. I cannot let this um, chat pass without mentioning those absolutely outstanding brilliant aerodynamicists and engineers in the late 1950s and the mid-1960s, both in France and in Britain, who had the brain power to create this extraordinary piece of technology that did exactly what it was supposed to do. I mean, it, it, it was, a, it was a, an achievement that ranks, in my view, at the same level as the Apollo Lunar Landing Programme. I mean, to produce an aeroplane where you're flying on the edge of space, flying faster than a rifle bullet, and yet the experience is made to feel completely ordinary for the passengers, that is one hell of an achievement, extraordinary achievement. Uh, I read a lot about, of course, the fact that Concorde was an extremely glamorous experience. But actually, you spoke a little bit about it earlier when you say that there's no question that a Boeing 747 first class was actually more comfortable from a passenger's point of view. And that actually the big um, benefit of Concorde was also the speed, right? And the fact of traveling fast. So is it true that actually the cabin of the Concorde was pretty small and the windows were small? It, it was pretty intricate in terms of personal space on board? Yes, it was, it was quite a crowded airplane. And, and if I uh, mentioned earlier that uh, we frequently had 100 passengers on board. And, you know, the, you, you are fairly densely crowded in. Having said that, each of those seats was a nice, comfortable armchair. You had plenty of leg room. The passenger sitting on the window seat didn't have as much headroom because of the sort of shape of the fuselage overhead. Um, the guy or lady sitting in the aisle seat would have much more headroom. Um, having said that, I mean, we've accommodated all shapes and sizes from members of the Harlem Globetrotters to Luciano Pavarotti, 
in my own personal experience, two opposite ends of the bodily spectrum. Pavarotti actually required two seats, bless him, because he was huge. He was a very large man. Um, uh, the atmosphere in the aeroplane was completely unlike the subsonic experience. I think a lot of our regular passengers, they almost felt that they were paid up members of a rather exclusive club. Mm -hmm. And they'd, they'd all meet up in the Concord departure lounge to enjoy a sort of few drinks before boarding and some lovely canapes and things, smoked salmon and so on. And they'd all know each other, you know, oh, hello, so-and-so, lovely to see you, how have you been? And that sort of gregarious, chummy atmosphere went on to, carried on during the flight. People would be chatting away to each other. You didn't have people sitting there with their headphones on, sort of on another planet. They were there enjoying meeting all their old mates and, and having a jolly good time flying across to New York. And it was that sort of extraordinary atmosphere, completely, totally different from the normal experience of flying. Uh, the last thing I want to ask you to kind of conclude this podcast, and then I will let uh, Patrick uh, finish and wrap up the, the podcast. But it's been a tradition in all the podcasts that we have done uh, since we started last year. Um, you know that aviation has been going through a very difficult times during these past 12 months because of COVID. And uh, of course, there are a lot of, you know, future pilots who are looking at, okay, should I start now? What's going on in the aviation industry? They are, we have a lot of students in training right now that, you know, that are a bit disheartened by what's going on in the aviation industry. So what advice or what, what would you tell them, those future pilots who are not of their own will, but arriving on an aviation market in such difficult circumstances? All I can say is that I am utterly convinced that once this monstrous thing has been dealt with, I can't wait to get back traveling. Um, so once we've got this damn thing sorted out, um, I think aviation will, will bounce back very, very quickly. It's always an in industry that has bounced back in the past, and I see no reason why it shouldn't do in the future, because I'm sure, absolutely certain, that the appetite for going to places like the Seychelles or Mauritius or Singapore or I'm going to Chicago, hopefully, um, in July to Oshkosh, you know, all this sort of thing. This, this is part of the life I'm used to and I don't want to give it up. I want to get back to it. So, and I'm sure the great majority of people feel the same way I'm certain about it. So I guess all you can say to these people who look looking at a shattered aviation industry at the moment, is just hang on somehow or other. Find some job or another that keeps you going, but don't lose sight of your goal and get back into it as soon as it all starts picking up again, because it will pick up again. I am quite, quite certain. No, thank you. Thank you, John. That's, uh, I think that's a great way to finish your podcast, isn't it, Patrick? It's been, to me, this has been like watching a, a wonderful movie and Learning about, uh, learning about the Concorde and about uh, what I will still call the glory days of flying. 
I uh, can't tell you how much of a privilege it's been for me to uh, speak to you and your lovely wife. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. That's the greatest pleasure, Patrick. And I just think as a final thought, uh, oh, I don't know how I'm going to... I'm going to have to leave you with a couple of final thoughts. Sure, go for it. Go for it. One is that if anybody had said to me in 1955, when I was doing my flying training on Harvard's, that 22 years later, I'd be flying passengers supersonic across the Atlantic or down to Bahrain, I'd have said you're out of your brain. But that's the reality of what happened in just 22 years. And the other story that illustrates what an extraordinary industry aerospace has been. I was doing a flight in 1978 from London to Washington and British Airways contacted me a few days before this flight and said, there's a very elderly lady traveling with you on that flight, an American lady. She had been the very first passenger to buy a ticket on United Airlines when they'd started up in the 1920s. She'd always been an avid follower of the airline industry, was passionately keen on airplanes. And would I please look after her um, during the flight and show her the flight deck. I said, of course I will. So on the day, we're flying down to Washington, the meal service is over, and I asked the cabin crew to bring this lady up onto the flight deck. And we all introduce ourselves to her. And I said, I said, well, okay. I said, well, when did you actually first see an aeroplane? She said, I asked her. And she said, oh, she said, I first saw an aeroplane when one of the Wright brothers landed at Savannah, Georgia in 1908. I said, oh, gosh. I said, well, in that case, when did you first fly? I first flew with Louis Blerio in 1911. Wow and my jaw must have collapsed onto the cockpit floor. Here I was talking to somebody who in her lifetime had gone from meeting the Wright brothers and Louis Blerier and flying with Louis Blerier at 23 miles an, an hour to flying with me in a Concorde in 1978 at 23 miles a minute. And I just, it blows my brain away that I have actually spoken to and shaken hands with somebody who's spoken to the Wright brothers and to Louis Blériot. Isn't that just amazing? So anybody whose hands I shake now, I can pass that on. Thanks again, John, for being with us. Great final story. Takes us really full circle. And um, for everyone else, I invite you to please go to Airside and check out all the resources we have there for pilots, articles, um, the jobs board, the CV builder, all things to get you back flying as soon as possible. Thanks again. CAE Pilot Podcast is brought to you by CAE, the global leader in training for the civil aviation, defense and security, and healthcare markets. For more information, check out CAE.com.